Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. It's 200 years since a missionary planted the first grapevine in New Zealand. Samuel Marsden, September the 25th, 1819, planted grapevines at the Stone Store in Kerikeri. It's really remarkable, one of the few countries in the world where we know the exact date when the first vines were planted. Wine is now New Zealand's sixth largest export, worth $1.83 billion. More than 100 countries buy it. On the detail today, New Zealand wine growers CEO Philip Gregan on the tale of sweet success. I can go into restaurants in Canada, in the United States, in Australia, in the United Kingdom, Singapore, Hong Kong, China, and I find New Zealand wine. And what you'll find is it'll be amongst some of the most expensive wine on that wine list. And that is a pretty singular achievement. In many ways, it's best to think of New Zealand as a giant, as in nation-sized, boutique producer of wine. In the world of wine, there's nothing like it. It's entirely unique. We're now known as one of the best wine-producing regions in the world, and we now have something that we're going to be handing on to another generation. But there are rain clouds hanging over the industry. Our wine is being caught up in trade turmoil. The international trade environment is troubling, deeply troubling, because we've prospered on the back of a rules-based system uh, where countries have adhered to that system. So you have to be worried about that. The US is our biggest market for wine. In the year to June 2019, it brought in more than half a billion dollars worth. It's third in dollar value, only behind French and Italian wine. So when Jacinda Ardern met Donald Trump this week, New Zealand wine growers sent out a press release straight away. You got that email out pretty quickly, didn't we you? We did. Was it all prepared? No, we knew the meeting was going to happen, obviously, and the United States is our number one market, so we thought we should say something. The President and the New Zealand Prime Minister don't often meet, so it was a good opportunity. Even though it was only a short meeting, I think it, that is significant, and we, we shouldn't underestimate the, the significance of the meeting. What would be the next steps, though? Because obviously this is the beginning. I mean, what do you want to get out of the US? As an industry, we are dependent on a rules-based system of trade. And the challenge around the world at the moment is that system is, is under challenge. You have all sorts of countries doing all sorts of different things. And as uh, exporters, we need that system ad- adhered to. If it's not adhered to, that is an additional risk Uh, and represents potentially significant costs for our exporters. So I think the United States and New Zealand working together to protect the WTO system is incredibly important. The WTO has been under attack from the United States administration, which has been blocking the appointment of replacement judges for dispute resolution committees, something which New Zealand primary industry groups voiced concern about. President Trump has labelled the WTO as greatly unfair to the US and previously threatened to pull out. The WTO Director-General Roberto Azevedo agrees change is needed. But I would say that without the system, um, the situation of the global economy would be much, much worse than it is today. We have to believe uh, that trade is positive. It brings countries together. It brings people together. And the expansion of global trade over the last 20 and 30 years have been huge. And I think everybody needs to do a better job in telling the, positive that, story. that positive story rather than seeing the, seeing the negatives. You know, 
from our perspective, uh, our industry would not be where it is today without the development of uh, freer international trade. We have over 7,000 employees in the industry. We support around 20,000 jobs in, in um, support industries with the largest horticultural crop by area. There's a lot of stuff happening domestic, domestically because of export success, and, and we need to tell that story better. But with the ongoing trade tensions between the US and China, where does a wine exporter fit in with all of that? You look and worry. At the moment, we have uh, tensions between the US and the EU, um, and wine has been listed as a product for possible retaliation between the US and the EU. That must be good news for New Zealand. Yes, it is potentially makers. good news, but you don't like to see wine dragged into these things. Mm. And wine certainly into China from the US uh, has been caught in the middle of the trade war. So we're a product like anybody else, and when there's all these tensions... And I suppose is the expression, when elephants start to fight, uh, smaller fry get caught and potentially trampled on. We're fighting a trade war, or at least the United States and China are, but uh, other countries, and New Zealand included, are all collateral damage. Have export dollars been affected no, at all? Not, not at yet. all. No, but it is the risk and the concern and the worry about what might happen rather than what is happening at the moment. And in all your years in this position, because how many years have you been uh, Chief Executive of Wine Growers? Nearly 30 years. Have you? Oh, my goodness. A long time. <laughs> in all your years here, how does this particular time, period in time, in terms of the trade and what's going on internationally, how does it compare with other periods? We've never seen a period like this, as far as I can see. Um, the in that nearly 30 years time the, the trajectory over that time with WTO agreements, free trade agreements has always been positive and we're now in this period of trade wars and a lot of questioning about the value of trade and that's fundamentally concerning. But that's not the biggest trade worry right now for wine growers. Definitely at the moment, UK, with Brexit, is our number one concern. Our view has been always long term that there's an opportunity for us from Brexit because almost by definition, our access into the UK market will improve relative to the access that may be enjoyed by the European producers. So we've always seen there's an opportunity there, medium to long term, once things settle down, short term, who knows what's going to happen? Uh, potentially a lot of disruption at the border, which is not good for anybody. No, and, and at the moment, is it business as usual for you, for, for wine growers? Yes, it, very much business as usual. Uh, I suppose with the slight caveat that we were expecting it in March, and we know that a whole lot of wine was shipped up early into the market so that it wouldn't be disrupted. People are now looking at a October uh, deadline and I suspect there's early shipments going up there again. So people are trying to prepare themselves as well as they possibly can. So that the, the wine doesn't get stuck at the border? Correct. And in your position, what can you do? Can, do, you, do you just have to sit here and watch things happen? Yes, we sit here and watch things happen and our members ring us up and we say to them, look, first thing is talk to your importers. They're on the ground there. This is the information that we're getting from the New Zealand government, 
the information we're getting from the UK government and the information we're getting from the likes of the trade organisations uh, inside the UK that we deal with. But let's go back to the beginning of the New Zealand wine story. The first vines of Vitis vinifera were planted there in 1819, but proper wine wouldn't be made until around 1836, thanks to the efforts of James Busby, the British viticulturalist who also played a huge role in the development of the Australian wine industry. Samuel Marsden's original vine has gone, but the remnants of Busby's first vines are still there. And what's actually interesting, if you go to the Treaty House, Busby's house, Behind Busby's house are some very old grapevines, and evidently those, according to uh, our discussions with Heritage New Zealand, those vines have been taken from cuttings from the original vines that Busby planted a few years later. What was that original grapevine? What kind of grape? Uh, We think there are a number of different varieties, but we understand that uh, at least one of them was a Syrah grape variety, which Syrah is increasingly important in places like Hawke's Bay and Waiheke Island and and Northland. Okay, so with all that in mind, 200 years on, what does the wine industry look like in New Zealand? Lots of ups and lots of downs and and, uh, lots of challenges, but the first people who grew vines, who made wines, were pioneers. Babbage Wines started in 1916. It was founded by my father, who came as an immigrant at the age of 14 into New Zealand in 1910. So he was probably only about maybe 15, 16 years old when he planted grapes, and uh, he produced his first wines in 1916, and we've been going ever since. We've carried that pioneering spirit through to this day, and we haven't been hidebound by the tradition of Europe, so we've had to find our way of, of doing things. And... You know, there are some really classic examples, and probably the most prominent one in the last 20 years is screw cap closures. Um, well over 95% of New Zealand wines are now sealed with a, a screw cap. We lead the world in it. We're seen as innovators. We're seen as doing th- things differently, and I think it's just a reflection of that innovative pioneer spirit. How did you get to become chief executive 30 years ago? Oh, look, I, uh, I joined the industry in 1983. and uh, Doing what? I was research officer for one of our predecessor organisations. Had you grown up in the wine industry? No, I grew up in West Auckland though, so... Okay, uh, amongst the, the grapevines there? Um, I mean, did you, were you familiar with...? Yes, it's, my father, I can remember going to uh, Lincoln Road and wineries like Collards that are it's no longer there, uh, Windy Hill. My sister was a friend at school of Mariana Brojkovic, whose family owned Kimu River. So mm-hmm. there were some connections with the wine industry. So what was it like when you were you first started as CEO? What, what, what was the whole industry like? It was domestically focused. There were concerns about the impact of CER, on, there was huh. concerns about the impact of free trade on our in the industry. In but what way? That Australia would run the New Zealand wine industry over in our domestic market. Oh, is that right? Within the CER trade agreement, there's a special annex that effectively delayed the introduction of CER for wine for a five-year period in order to protect the New Zealand wine industry and allow it to adjust to CER. 
So there were those concerns, but on the positive side of things, there were some really strong leaders uh, in the industry, some very visionary people who believed that New Zealand wine could do well on the, on the world stage. There are a lot of people and a lot of companies out there who believed absolutely that was a positive future for the industry, despite the tough times. Right, uh, and in the mid eighties. Yeah, well, at tough times. Yeah, and in in the eighties, what were we all drinking? Uh, we were drinking Muller Turgau, and <laughs> out of a cask. Out of a cask and variations on Muller Turgau. How did that turn around, and the industry end up producing these top wines that people all over the world love? I think you've got to go back to one of the seminal events, which was until the early nineteen sixties. It was illegal to sell food and alcohol, food and wine together, unless it was in a hotel dining room. So there weren't restaurants because it was illegal to do it. When those laws changed, it enabled the wine industry to start producing wines that sold with food, that were the natural accompaniment to food. Well, in 1961, when I first started making wine in New Zealand, if you wanted to be a winemaker, you had to have a real passion for it. You had to be innovative and think for yourself. That created a great foundation for us. It's amazing, in virtually one generation, we've gone from nothing into a world-class wine industry. And you see a very rapid evolution through the 1960s and the 1970s into the 1980s about producing wines that more and more suit being sold in restaurants. Mm. And that... Evolution was really rapid, and you got to a period in the 1980s uh, where we had some difficulties. There was a grapevine pull. 25% of the grapevines in New Zealand were pulled out of the ground, and then from that base, the industry went forward very quickly. It planted Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Chardonnay, the varieties that people know today. So what, what was it in the 1980s that led to this pulling of the grapevines? CER, tax increases, overplanting. There was a whole lot of things that came together all at once and there was some drastic surgery carried out and from that point forward, the industry's just kept on growing. And so over that time, what would you say are some of the most exciting points for you in those years. If you look at the late 1980s, we were starting to get accolades in international wine competitions. And effectively, every time we got an accolade, we used to issue a press release saying, wasn't this great? Hmm. And Sauvignon Blanc, which is now our, our biggest export wine by far, we only had two or three or 400 hectares of, of those vines in the country. So oh, is that right? It was very small. So our reputation was, was built on a quite small area of grapevines with Sauvignon Blanc. When we started out with wine in New Zealand, we didn't have hundreds of years of history like they do in France, so we needed to be uh, innovative. We needed to experiment with varietals, we needed to experiment with different sites. Probably the most classic example is Sauvignon Blanc in Marlborough. The innovation there was to bring that grape, to grow it in the stony, bony soils, and in doing that we discovered that the grape expresses itself completely different. It has the essence of New Zealand in it. So we started to develop a reputation and then the industry worked together really well at promoting our wines in offshore, in offshore markets. And that was you know, a whole lot of companies realising that we needed to work together if we were 
to further develop that reputation. Uh, not everybody agreed on everything all the time, of course. It didn't work that way. Mm. But the fundamental that we had to promote the New Zealand category first and foremost, that was something that everybody agreed on. And there's been some big challenges as well, haven't there? In recent years, I'm talking about well beyond the 1980s, there were concerns about a glut yeah. The pricing, that the wine was going too cheap, ongoing issues with not having enough seasonal workers to pick the grapes. Look, there have always been problems, and certainly in the period 2008 through to 2012, we really struggled. Effectively, we planted too many grapes and got ahead of the market. That effectively depressed prices. But I think the industry would say it came out of that stronger. We sorted it out ourselves. We didn't go cap in hand to government asking for assistance. But I would characterise most of our challenges that we currently face as really being about being successful and growing. And that doesn't mean they're not challenging. They are. Mm. But they're about the challenges associated with success. What do you mean by that? How do we manage the growth? The supply of labour, RSE workers, um, if we were the same size as we were back in the 1980s, we wouldn't need any RSE workers, but our vineyard area is six to seven times greater, so we need more, more labour supply. And will that area continue to grow? Yes, it will do. It will do, but one of the challenges we're facing is Marlborough is our major producing region. It is filling up with grapevines, so... What does the industry do when Marlborough is fully planted? It's a, it's a question occupying a lot of thought at the moment. Is that right? And, and what are the options? Well, there's, there's lots of options. You can uh, increase, increase your yields, obviously. Uh, you can increase your, increase your quality and hopefully generate higher prices. You can expand into other regions. Now, climate change, the topic of the moment, I have just read something, the top ten things that you need to know about climate change. On the upside is, is wine. I have to read it out to you and tell me if you agree with this. There are upsides to climate change for New Zealand's wine industry. Conditions that make for great grapes hot, dry weather are exactly what's predicted for many of our wine-growing regions in the coming decades, which will see us producing more wine with more intense flavours. Yeah, climate change is certainly... I think if you ask our winemakers and our grape growers, they'd say they're absolutely seeing it now. Um, We are seeing warmer temperatures in winter, fewer frosts, um, more variable weather. Uh, So it's here and now. Um, There is some upside from it. Uh, that areas that previously have not been suitable for growing grapes probably will be. Mm. Uh, we're fortunate as a country that we've got... Um, we're a long, elongated country covering a lot of latitude. Uh, so that's, that's some upside. Uh, but yeah, obviously we're concerned about the fact that we could lose the climate that combines with our place to create the... Dis- the distinctive flavours that um, we have produced in our wines over the last 20 or 30 years. We produce good wine, great wine, because we are cooler climate, not because we are are warm climate. Mm. Uh, And so quite how it's going to play out, it's really difficult to say, but uh, the industry is very concerned about climate change and and what's happening. Are winemakers preparing for that kind of thing? 
Uh, yes, they are. Um, we've been doing a lot of research through our research agency, the Brigato Research Institute. They've been working with NIWA and the Australian Wine Research Institute, looking at what's going to happen to the weather, to the climate in our regions uh, over the next 20, 30, 80 years. And then we're starting to think about, you know, what are the steps we can do to to manage that climate change and also, of course, to minimise our contribution to that climate change. So it's not necessarily as, as positive as... There, there, always, there will be some positives, but, you know, I think if you need to look at the bigger picture here and the bigger picture around climate change is not good. That's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The details brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell. Kakite kite anō.